And he went back to do, and then there were three. Follow sorry, you and we'll Okay, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have started that. Hey, Prague fans, welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prague Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, every single month, I am joined by Craig and Lee. We are three friends and Prague aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and the personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on X, the platform previously known as Twitter at up3show also on instagram at up3show we're on the mastodon.social server at up3show basically if you're looking on the internet look for at up3show and you'll find us we also have our homepage at up3show.com where you can find all of our back episodes if you'd like to reach out to the show directly which we would highly encourage you can contact us via email at up3show at gmail.com As a reminder, if you just can't get enough of us, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our podcast page at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. This makes sure that you never miss an episode and helps other prog fans find the show. I have a question. Yes, of course you do. Is aficionado kind of like overstating it a little bit? I don't think so. Well, let's go with that unvarnished opinion, Craig. (laughs) (laughs) So what should it be if it's not aficionado? Exactly. I think it is aficionado. Okay. What would you like it to be? No, I don't know. It's just, it feels like it's, uh, you know. Pretentious? Yeah, that's the word. Thank you. Okay. I'm fine with being pretentious. <laughs> Same. Like, like <laughs> how many people that read Cigar Aficionado actually know shit about cigars? Yeah, exactly. That's true. And, and you know, this is the ultimate yeah. prog podcast, so. Pretentiousness is baked into the title. Aim high. You would want it to be run by aficionados. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Our four listeners all think that we're great. So, (laughs) and that's the only opinion that matters to me. There you go. Same time, different month. Here we are again to talk about something that we find interesting. But as we usually do, we're going to do a little bit of catching up first. I'll start with Lee on this one. Lee, what have you been up to since last month? Still continuing down the road of more animations and videos at work. And that's pretty cool. I'm diving pretty deep into Adobe After Effects. But the big news studio-wise is I decided to take on moving my projects from one DAW cakewalk to another one. And so I decided to try Pro Tools. And that has taken the good part of two weeks. And since I think it's relevant to the show, Lee, can you explain why you decided to make the plunge at this time? Yeah, I let myself get my hair caught on fire for no good reason. I was under the mistaken impression that Cakewalk was in danger of going under because of all the trouble that's going on at Bandcamp, which we should also talk about. I thought Cakewalk was being maintained by Bandcamp. It's not. It's being maintained by Band Lab. Band Lab. And it's a different thing, yeah. I was trying to find the connection. Yeah, so senior moment on my part. But Cakewalk's fine, no worries, still going forward, at least as far as I know. But once I started this, I decided to keep moving forward. I've always wondered how bad it would be to move DAWs. 
I decided to try a couple of different DAWs in trial mode. Okay. Notably Pro Tools. How are you liking Pro Tools? Well, first of all, the install experience sucks. And you're doing it on Windows, right? Yeah, but if anyone from Avid is listening, your install experience is awful. You need to go talk to somebody about user experience. I swear I had to click through 40 different dialog boxes of plugins. Wow. All from the same plugin distributor, Plugin Alliance. You can easily do that with one dialog box just saying, yes, I'm running trial mode. Hmm. It was ridiculous. Okay. But I was able to finally get it up and running. It looks great. They are very, very good on things like being able to plug in virtual instruments really quickly. I have heard that. Yeah, Avid has a collection of scratch musical instruments that are pretty much like virtual instruments. And you can be up and running with song ideas really quickly. You don't have to figure out where's my MIDI patch and who's playing what and all that crap. And then it's also really good at post-production on the back end, much better than Cakewalk. With things like surround sound and Dolby 5.1 and all that, they do a much better job. Mm. But as far as just basic audio and MIDI, I actually think it's behind Cakewalk. Mm. They don't do some things like MIDI expression, which has been around for a couple of years now. The drum map in Pro Tools was horrible, but the drum map in Cakewalk is also horrible. They've never done that right. So it may be that nobody does drum maps worth a damn. Maybe. And I ended up deleting it and just deciding I'm sticking with Cakewalk. Wow. I might try Ableton. I can't try Logic because it's only on iOS. It's interesting that you say that about the install experience because I've talked to Jeff Basente before. A lot of his work he does with voice actors who are not generally technically savvy. That's not their job. They make their money being VO. And some of them, not all of them, install Pro Tools. If it's that challenging, I can only imagine the nightmare they must go through. I wanted to try it with a decent set of plugins so I could see how that worked. Right. Mm -hmm. And once I got past that, it ran pretty well. But in the end, it wasn't worth 300 bucks a year to keep the damn thing going. Right. Wow. Oh, and the last piece I'll tell you is I was able to find a pretty decent way to migrate projects. It actually isn't as difficult as I thought it would be. You mean from Cakewalk to Pro Tools? Yeah, Cakewalk supports uh, an export all audio function that keeps everything in sync. And then separately, you can export all your MIDI files. Oh, nice. And that includes meter, time signature, key signatures. Hmm. It imported directly into Pro Tools. So it's basically like a two-step process per project. And I was up and running. Oh, wow. You don't get your plugins the way they were in the old tool. That doesn't come across. And as far as I can tell, nobody does plugins like that. Hmm. On that topic, I thought I had seen somewhere, and I could be just totally misremembering, that there was an open standard for uh, DAW export formats. Yeah, there is, and it's called OMF. And I read from a few different people on blogs that they were not happy with OMF. Okay, It didn't bring everything over. And Cakewalk does support OMF. I didn't really check Pro Tools, but I just manually tried this two-step process and it worked. So, Wow, that sounds like a lot, but I think very interesting to our listeners. Yeah. To come back to one thing we talked about in the middle there that I want to focus on just a, a bit is the Bandcamp situation. Yes. It's not looking great, folks. No. Bandcamp has been sold off. They're no longer part of Epic Games. And within like days of being sold, laid off half their staff. 
Yeah, Epic sold them to Song Trader. And I've read since the layoffs, people can't even get into the systems to go update user information and things like that. It's not good. This is a big deal for a lot of indie artists, not just uh, our audience's favorite bands. All of the bands and people that we've interviewed and had on the show or talked about or even the unheard of, everyone uses Bandcamp. This is a major issue in the industry Hmm. because it's a really great outlet for indie artists. It's just an easy way to get your stuff out. Yeah, exactly. It broke down all the walls. Very much what scares me is it could potentially return to that stranglehold of the studios as it used to be. Yeah. It gave a lot of agency to the artists. Yes. I definitely recommend our listening audience pay attention to the situation because it could affect the music that you have to listen to. Or the music that they have up there. Exactly. I think that's well said. Mm -hmm. Craig, what have you been up to last month? Yeah, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Jazz. Yeah, pretty much. We're like a six-piece quartet now. That's cool. Nice. A six-piece quartet. How does that work out? No, it's uh, me, bass player, drummer, singer, sometimes, sax, and trumpet. And we did 30 minutes at a bar in Edgewater Sunday night, and we killed. Cool. Nice. It was totally cool. There's a bar out there called Enigma Bazaar that has a blues jam every other Sunday. So a lot of Stevie Ray Vaughan kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And we do 30 minutes of jazz standards, and people afterwards were coming up to us like, that was so refreshing. Good. You know, they put together different ensembles, basically, and mm-hmm. each ensemble gets like 30 minutes. And there's a lot of talent, man. I'll tell you what. Nice. It was really fun to hang out. That sounds really, really fun. If you're a relatively new listener to the podcast, please go listen to all of the old episodes to hear Craig's journey. Yeah. This has become a real big deal for you. We play three nights a week now. I'm playing twice this weekend. So I'm in the Colorado Conservatory of Jazz Arts combo. That show's coming up. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Those combos, they were originally intended for high school kids to get more exposure to professional level musicians, and then they opened it up to adults. And the people that are leading these combos are world-class musicians. I mean, they've won Grammys. This dude who's teaching the combo I have now, he's a trumpet player, and he played in Buddy Rich's band. Jeez. They have stories, and they have skills, and they're just all the nicest people in the world. That's really cool. That's cool. How about you, Tony? What are you doing? I'm the most boring of the three, because I have a big work trip coming up. It's the first big international trip since COVID happened. And so there's a lot of logistics going into it and been really, really heads down focused on that. And then when I have had time, I've mostly been doing fiction writing. Ooh, oh, cool. I've got a couple of story germs that I'm trying to figure out what the right format is. Should it be a short story? Should it be something slightly longer? Should it be more of like a teleplay or something like that? I thought you meant what font to use. It's interesting, actually. I learned a thing a few months ago in cinema when you hear people talk about how many pages something is and why that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. There is actually a very tightly controlled format of how a screenplay is written. It's standardized on American 8.5 by 11 paper, and they use a specific variant of Courier New and a very specific font height. The teleplay is written in a special format so that if you follow it, one page is approximately one minute of screen time. Um. So if someone knows that your screenplay is 110 pages, they roughly know that it's 110 minutes. That makes sense. What if you have like a lot of stage direction? When you're writing a screenplay, 
Your job is not to tell the director how to shoot it. Your job is to just write the thing, what the story is. Write the words. That's your part of the vision. How to shoot it is the director's job. And so if you're putting a lot of that in your screenplay, you're probably not going to sell your screenplay because no director is going to sign on to do it. Right. Got it. And that's really what I've been up to is exploring that and figuring out those creative germs. That's cool. Nothing relevant to the show or music, but uh, interesting nonetheless. Which kind of brings us to, and I'll start back with you again now, Craig. What have you been listening to since last month? I've been listening to a lot of Brand X. <laughs> Spoiler, if you haven't seen the title of this episode. Well, I would have to say the person I've been listening to that I haven't really shared is Wayne Shorter, mm-hmm. who is a sax player. He played with Weather Report and a whole bunch of other people. Mm-hmm. He passed away recently. There's a Netflix documentary on him. Okay. And there's a couple of jazz standards that everybody does that are Wayne Shorter tunes. So I've been kind of binging on him just a little bit. Very cool. At some point in the future, I would love to do like an unheard of or a bootleg on jazz standards. Oh, sure. I think that would be super interesting and really cool. Something I would love to learn more about. I would love to do it. What have you been listening to since last monthly? I am listening to Trevor Rabin's new solo album, Rio. And how was that? I am thoroughly enjoying it. It's getting great press. It's a wide variety of genres, but I'm really, really enjoying it. It's very different than anything I've heard in the last couple of years. Nice. What are some of the other genres besides prog that he's doing? Well, his first solo album in 1984 is Can't Look Away, and you would recognize that as rock or prog rock. Mm -hmm. But then he does Jack Aranda in 2012. And that album is a very mixed bag of genres, much like this album is, but it has no vocals on it. Mm-hmm. So I consider this album, Rio, to almost be an extension of Jacaranda, but with vocals. But it's got bluegrass, it's got country western, it's got full-on prog rock. It even has this fast electric guitar picking style that I almost can compare to flamenco. Wow. I mean, that's just me, but I don't really know any other way to describe it. It's very unique to Trevor Rabin. Wow. But anyway, all over the map as far as genres go. I'm really liking it. Cool. Yeah. Very interesting. For me this month, I think I listened to music in layers. I've got this base layer of just music I'm constantly going back to. The Ocean Collective and specifically Holocene has kind of landed in that for me right now. Yeah. But then when I branch out from it, right now I've been listening to a lot of Frost, Hmm. specifically today, listening to the track Million Town over and over. Like that is just a great track. I have done just an amazing track. And it's like a half an hour. So like try to do that one between meetings, guys. Yeah. And then for reasons that will become apparent very soon, listening to a lot of Transatlantic. Cool. What's Million Town about? It's based on the book The Apprentice by Gordon Houghton. Oh, Lee has an answer. I didn't have this answer. I've always wondered it, and yeah. I've never bothered to Google it because I lose interest by the end of the song. <laughs> you forgot by the end of the song? <laughs> I, for, I forget to Google it. In the novel, a dead man is recruited to be the apprentice of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and if you follow the lyrics, it's pretty intense set of lyrics. I number you carving circles in your soul. Wow. I pull you through as I do cut your family ties before your eyes. Yeah, very intense set of lyrics. But my understanding is Million Town's not completely following the novel. It's just kind of loosely based on that concept. Interesting. Hmm. 
So then before we go too much further, Lee, can you give us an update on news and new releases? Yeah, the big news rocking the prog world right now is Mike Portnoy is returning to Dream Theater for their 16th studio album. It broke the internet. It did. Yeah, I didn't think I would see this happen, but here it is. I don't know how I feel about this. I know. I am all over the map about this myself. You know, I'm excited. Yeah. I think he's a colorful character. One of my criticisms of Dream Theater is they just don't have a rhythm section that really brings excitement with the exception of Jordan. Yeah, I get it. I understand your excitement. And honestly, the next album will probably be really good. Portnoy is a very creative guy and Mm -hmm. really thinks outside the box. Yes. He's possibly the best drummer in the world, but I just can't get over the feeling that they screwed somebody over again. (laughs) Yes. So on that point, Lee, I want to read directly from the statement that they made. Go for it. And I think this goes directly to that point. It says, I understand Dream Theater's decision to get Mike Portnoy back at this time, said Mike Mangini. Yeah. As was said from day one, my place was not to fill all the roles that Mike held in the band. I was to play the drums in order to help the band carry on. And that pisses me off. It pisses me off, too. It was pretty low-key. He was supposed to mark time. Yeah. And I go back to the documentary that they made about the hiring of the new drummer. I love Mike. Mangini, you are a kick-ass drummer, dude. This is nothing about you. In fact, if anything, it's defending you. You know, if Dream Theater really wanted to hire a new Mike Portnoy-style drummer that would have given character to the band, I still, to this day, say they should have hired Marco Miniman. Hmm. I'm mad primarily because I can't count the number of interviews I read where Petrucci said, forget about it, the slot is Mangini's until he doesn't want it anymore. Yeah, that's a good Hmm. point. And now, in hindsight, that obviously was never true. And that's also not how the press release came across. And honestly, I think Petrucci will just screw anybody over to get the vision he wants for this band. He did it to Sherinian. I was going to bring that up, too. Yeah, mm, Yeah. right, right. Yep. And now he's done it to Mangini. So do you think that they were just not selling records or you think they're not getting the crowds they wanted to get? Are you thinking that Mike Portnoy is going to do that? You know, who knows what he thinks? I am pretty sure he keeps up with the blogs and what people say. Mm-hmm. And for the older Dream Theater crowd, Mangini just hasn't been that exciting, which is a shame because Mangini's such a great drummer, but mm. it's just a no-win situation. You're following Portnoy, who is possibly one of the best drummers in the world. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the real problem with Dream Theater is not Mangini versus Portnoy. I agree. It's Labrie. Yeah. <laughs> and we noticed that at Dream Sonic this summer. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. He is great in the studio. When he's got time to rest between takes, he's fine. But live, his pipes are gone. I'm sorry. Yeah. It reminds me of when sports players are at the tail end of their career, how they go back and they sign with their rookie team just for one season to ride out on a high note. A similar thing happened with Judas Priest, where they got the old lineup and then they basically kind of rode off into the sunset. And I just wonder, are we looking at them getting all the chess pieces of Dream Theater back together so they can end the way they started? Yeah, that doesn't ring true for me. I think Petrucci has every intention of driving this for several more albums. Mm -hmm. I just think it's incredibly sad for Mangini. Mm -hmm. Who knows what's going to happen with side projects like Sons of Apollo, Winery Dogs, Transatlantic. All of that's probably over, at least in the short term. Mm Mm-hmm. But this has probably been brewing for a long time. 
Probably since Portnoy played on Petrucci's. The tour. Yeah, Terminal Velocity tour. Yep. Yep. From a musical standpoint, Dream Theater has gotten very monotonous, I think is the word. Yeah. Corporate. Lee and I have talked about this a lot. Dream Theater Inc. just mix and repeat each time, right? Yeah. McDonald's tastes like McDonald's everywhere in the world kind of thing. Right. And, you know, honestly, as a fan of the band, if they're going to make this big of a deal of it, this next album had better rock my socks off. It had better be a big deal. Otherwise, they really, truly fucked over Mike Mangini. Yeah, I agree. There you have it. So stay tuned. We'll see what happens moving forward. Finally, Peter Gabriel gave us a release date for IO. And Tony's theory, I think, was correct. It's coming out December 1st, and 10 of 12 of the tracks have been previewed. By the time we get there, I think all 12 of them will have been previewed. So I think your annual cycle makes sense, Tony. I was looking at the links that were provided in the different versions of the album, which I did go ahead and pre-order, and I did the big deluxe one. Mm -hmm. It's an A-side, B-side kind of thing with the dark side mixes and then the light side mixes. Yeah, so you called it. I think I did. Now, what was curious to me is when we saw the announcement, the links that Peter Gabriel put for Amazon anyway, to get a physical copy, went only to amazon.co.uk. Oh. Those same links and products do not exist on amazon.com for America. And so I ended up purchasing directly from Real World, which is Peter Gabriel's publishing company. Mm -hmm. All of the other links were digital distribution. Amazon Digital Music, Spotify, Tidal, like all of those kinds of places, which was interesting. That is interesting. Arch Echo has a new album, Final Pitch. Came out in the summer. I missed it in my last update. And they will be in Denver next week. And I am really looking forward to that. I saw that. Kairos released a new single called Esoterica. Oh, wow. I thought it sounded like a recirculation of their last full album, Selexa Dreams. Hmm. So I was disappointed, actually. Pattern Seeking Animals' fourth album, Spooky Action at a Distance, will have already been released by the time this episode posts, coming out end of October. Earthside's second album, Let the Truth Speak, is coming out November 17th. We talked about that last time. And I am working hard behind the scenes to see if I can get them for an interview. Have you guys ever heard of Joseph Magazine? No. No. It is a band out of Poland, and they came out with an album called The Night of the Red Sky in 2011. And it has some of my favorite songs on it. And they finally crowdfunded enough to get a second album done. So they're about to release their second album, Source of Creation. Nice. District 97, Stay for the Ending. That came out October 20th. And Stephen Wilson's Harmony Codex came out September 29th. I have not gotten to dive deep into that one, but I definitely will before the next episode. There you go. So before we move on to the main part of the show and really make this the Craig show tonight... Craig, why don't you tell us about something unheard of? This is unheard of to me, and as I was going through it, I don't know if it's unheard of to you guys or not, but we're going to find out. So I was playing music with some friends on Saturday, and we had a guest vocalist, a young woman from Boulder, and she brought with her a guitar player, also a young woman from Boulder. And we just got to talking in between songs, and it's like, hey, what are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm going to see this progressive rock band at the Mission Ballroom. I'm like, really? Who's that? And it was a band called Polyphia. Have you ever heard of them? Absolutely. I love Polyphia. Really? So they're not unheard of. How about you, Tony? I've heard of them, but haven't listened to them. They have four studio albums out. 
Well, why don't we just make the episode about Polyphia and I'll do an unheard of on Brand X. <laughs> no. Oh, God, <laughs> Greg. These guys showed up on my radar like Saturday. Anyway, I did a little research. They're a prog band out of Plano, Texas. In the stuff I've read, sometimes they're described as prog pop. Sometimes they're described as math music, like tool. I didn't really get much of that from my listening, but granted, I did not explore their entire discography. But let's uh, throw a couple clips up for our listeners who have not heard of them. This first clip is a song called Look But Don't Touch. I like that. Is that proggy enough for you? Tim Henson and Scott LePage, the guitarist, just amazing guitarist. And that's math rock. Changing time signatures. In math metal, there's a lot of very exacting precision. Definitely got a lot of that. From their description, I thought, oh, maybe they'll be like Kairos, but uh, definitely no. not. They're mostly instrumentals. I did find one thing online where they had a singer. Yeah, just very briefly at first, but he never made it onto an album. They consist of guitarist Tim Henson and Scott LePage, bassist Clay Gober, and drummer Clay Eshleman. So uh, I'll just throw another clip out here. Jazz metal. Yeah, I gotta go listen more to these guys. It's tasty stuff, man. What I'm excited about is uh, this young woman guitar player who wants to learn jazz and be in our band went to see a group like this, and it's like, cool, even if we're playing standards, she has the right sensibilities. That's a good sign. (laughs) That's right. They are currently touring, selling out venues across the country. They are doing a nationwide tour. I'm excited to explore them more. This last tune is interesting. I found it on YouTube. And they have a guest guitar player, Steve Steve Vai, of all people. Nice. And the song's called Ego Death, so let's take a listen. As I listened to this and was listening today, I'm thinking, crap, what was I doing last Saturday? I mean, I hope it was good because I <laughs> you missed go this. see this yeah. show. I know, I'm pissed. <laughs> I missed this. The band's name is Polyphia. They're on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music. Interestingly, they did not seem to be on Bandcamp. Interesting. My takeaway is since I got turned on to them by a 20-something-year-old <laughs> female guitar player, it's like, I guess that's what the kids nowadays think Prague is. That's a good thing. It is good. Back to you, Tony. Without any further ado, I'm going to throw it back to you, Craig, and let's go talk about Brand X. Brand X. 
we're going to mostly be taking a trip in the Wayback Machine today. We're going to listen to some music that really couldn't be much more different from Polyphia if we tried. So Brand X, I think, is one of those bands that you love, and then you realize not many other people have ever really heard of them, and then you turn them onto it, and they're like, holy shit, that was great. Mm-hmm. I think that was our experience, Lee, on the cruise. Yep. That was a big selling point for me that Brand X, the band, was going to be on the 2019 Cruise to the Edge. And I was shocked and surprised that you didn't know who Brand X was. No. But then we saw them at a small venue and had good seats. And what was your takeaway? I knew the name Brand X. I had just never sat down and listened to any of them. Mm-hmm. My take was pretty straight ahead prog jazz or fusion. Mm-hmm. Really good stuff. Very tasty. Not anything too intense. Everybody took their turns soloing. Mm-hmm. Some of the key work reminded me of Joe Zabino from Weather Report. Overall, I guess it reminded me a little of Rippington's or maybe even Spyrogyra or Tangerine Dream. Huh. So I'm glad you brought that up, Lee, because that's where I was going to go with this. I've seen Craig wear his Brand X shirt, had never listened <laughs> to a lick of them mm-hmm. until prep for this episode. Yep. And so then I started listening to it. And I was very much feeling like I was transported back to my childhood home listening to the music of my father. And it was like Rippington's, Spyrogyra, yeah. Weather Report that you already mentioned, mm-hmm. a band that I've more recently discovered called Hiroshima. Hmm. And those bands were all, when I was growing up, referred to as fusion jazz. Mm-hmm. And so I would put Brand X in that category. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about is progressive jazz in this way just a different labeling of fusion jazz? I personally think it is. I don't know if others would agree, but I use the terms interchangeably all the time. Okay. So like Stanley Clark, Hiram Bullock. Okay. It's proggy in terms of the music, but it absolutely has jazz elements. Yeah, the jazz element you can't deny. It jumps out at you straight away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it felt very much like those other bands that Lee has already mentioned and what I grew up being familiar with. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to play a couple of clips here. This first clip is, why should I lend you mine when you've already broken yours? (laughs) That's a good title. And I'm going to do two clips. So one of the things about this band is a lot of the songs are super duper long and they have a lot of movements. Mm -hmm. And 30 second clips don't do it justice. So in a couple of cases, I uh, did uh, clip 1A and 1B. So we're going to listen to two parts of Why Should I Lend You Mine? going to go to the little later in the tune. Very freeform. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I wanted to play that one is to politely rub in your face that when you call them Spyrogyra, I didn't want to react too viscerally. 
<laughs> no, let's talk about that. Why is that? And I listened to a lot of Spyrogyra about the same time I was listening to a lot of Brand X, and this is back in the 80s when I was in college. Spyrogyra is much more straight ahead, happy, <laughs> jaunty. Uh, major keys. Yeah, major keys. Uh, still incredible instrumentation, you know, a lot of percussion. But to me, this just has a bit of an edge, mm. which you guys weren't necessarily picking up on. Well, I think your two clips made your point because the first half, I think, definitely had a spirogyra feel. But the second half definitely had a lot more of an edge. Well, expand on that. What do you mean by an edge there? Those two clips we just played are basically as one minute of about nine minute song. Yeah. And started off with pretty mellow, mm -hmm. but it really does build to a mighty crescendo. And many of their songs move like that, have that sort of musical journey. Interesting. Spyrogyra, I don't feel like is that at all. Okay. Spyrogyra, they're kind of more just jazz tunes. You start off, they got an A section, they got a B section, people do some solos, and you play the head out and you're done. This is not that. I agree with you. Do you know much about the recording of Brand X? Because one thing that it feels like to me with listening to it... Mm-hmm is that they were recorded jam band style with everyone in the room. To go back to your comment about them being like, I, I don't know if you use the word improvisational or not, in that kind of feel. Mm -hmm. Did that play into this? I don't have a lot of information about that, though I have been reading. They did a whole lot of stuff in the studio that never made it onto albums. So I have a feeling it might be similar to... Liquid Tension Experiment, Okay, where I get the feeling that the four of them went in the studio, then music popped out the other side. Yeah, when I was doing my own research, I think one of their albums, the A-sides of an entire album were the B-sides left over from the previous album or something like that. It was an intense amount of material they created. Yeah, and that might be one of their last studio albums that you're thinking of. So, just to talk more about Brand X and who they are, they sort of had three distinct periods where they were active. In 75 to 80, they released three of their best albums, Unmasked, Moroccan Roll, and Unorthodox Behavior. And I got all three of them at the same time. And much like you in Million Town, I listened to those three albums over and over and over and over and over and over and over again while I was in college. I was a runner, and that was just the best stuff to run to because you could just run for 45 minutes and it's like two songs. So 75 to 80 was when I thought they were at their most fertile. Mm-hmm. Then they broke up for about 10 years, and then from 92 to 98, they got back together and recorded a few more albums. And then they got back together in 2016 and stayed together till 2022 until one of their band members passed away from COVID, actually. Ooh. And he wasn't really that much of an active member of the band, but they were still family. And they just decided, all right, I think we're done. Wow. So they have officially shut the lights off and locked the door, got their security deposit back. Hopefully. And they didn't really record anything new in the 2020-16-2022 timeframe. But that's when we saw them on the boat. And I had never seen them back in their 75 to 80 days. Their keyboard player was no longer with them. And they had this new guy, Chris Clark, who was amazing. I am such a Chris Clark fangirl. There was a place on the boat where there was a baby grand piano just sort of out there at what would normally be a bar when it was a normal cruise. And he would play prog songs from beginning to end on piano. Like he'd play Relayer, Gates of Delirium on the piano, beginning to end, 
play an entire album side of Kansas, Point of No Return, and, you know, just stuff like that. And the guy just is a savant. He filled in the keyboard role in Brand X in this 2016 to 2022 timeframe really well. When we did see him on the boat, you mentioned a couple of times that they resurrect periodically. Mm-hmm. Is it with different people, the same people, or is it a different band? Well, that's a great question. The core guys of Brand X were really these three guys, John Goodsall on guitar, Percy Jones on bass, and a guy named Robin Lumley on keyboards. John Goodsall was really the guy who stayed with the band forever. There was only a very, very brief period of time when he was not involved, and it was just a scheduling thing. But he was the only remaining member that was on the boat. But what's interesting about him is he plays a fretless bass, and it's very distinctive. I'm going to play an example of him on fretless bass. I love fretless bass. Yeah, me too. How sweet is that? I love that. He was doing that about the same time Jocko was doing the fretless bass. Yeah. The bass player I play with plays a fretless, and Jocko's his hero. Yes. What my friend James was telling me is that Jocko Pastorius invented the fretless bass. Is that a true fact? I wouldn't know, but I absolutely believe it. Yeah. Yeah, I would too. That that would track for my understanding. Yeah. I guess my point is, this is the same time period. So you got these two jazz dudes who have really embraced a fretless bass and really integrated it into the music, yeah. both Jocko and this guy. Not to put them in the same camp as Jocko, but maybe close to it, because I really do think this dude is great. Those are the three main guys. They've also had a number of drummers. And here's the interesting thing. On their first several albums, Phil Collins was their drummer. No shit. That was the thing that really hooked me at first, because my roommate in college turned me on to a bunch of stuff, turned me on to King Crimson. And he mentioned, hey, yeah, there's this jazz band that Phil Collins plays on. And I was, you know, a Genesis nerd at the time. It's like, all right, I got to hear that. And Brand X was just forming in late 70s. They lost their drummer, but they were recording in the same studio where Genesis was recording. And they knew Phil Collins and they knew he was a good drummer and pulled him in and the rest is history. Mm-hmm. In their early days, they were poised to really skyrocket because they had some freaking star power and Phil Collins was really crushing it. And he gave that up to go back to Genesis. Yeah, he kind of never left Genesis. When Wind and Wuthering came out, which was their last Steve Hackett album, yeah. and he's like, oh, I got a tour with them, you know. So what's interesting about Phil and Moroccan Roll, he is billed as vocalist oh. on Brand X. And you would think, vocals and Brand X? And I think it was because he had just become the vocalist for Genesis about that same time frame, and he was really like, ah, I've got to sing. So here is Phil singing on some instrumental jazz. Is 
it's basically scat. <laughs> it's like Indian scat. Yeah, kind of. Like, how high was he when he recorded that? Yeah. <laughs> this is just a great album. Moroccan Roll is such a wonderful album. I've listened to it a million times. What's neat about this particular song is later on, it goes into a sitar solo. Uh-huh. Let's listen to that, because that's cool. I'm a big fan of sitar. What immediately came to mind for me on that is this is what it would be like if Dixie Dregs had a sitar. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) That's awesome. Like I said, they're very 70s prog jazz, and I just wanted to play another clip that is more straight ahead. Maybe it's closer to Spirogyra a little bit, so I'm not letting that go. How did I not, like, we just referenced them offhand, and now, like, Craig is like a dog with a bone. Well, I think that first track you played did sound like a lot like Spyrogyra. Oh, God, help Sorry me. to tell you that, but I did. Oh. UP3 is about to become UP2, pal. <laughs> <laughs> which one of us is going? No, that's fine. So, which one was that? That was, uh... Um, why should I lend you mine? All right, yeah, that's like a little bit Spire. I'll give you Hold, hold on, Craig, what part of unvarnished opinions did you not understand? <laughs> In a vacuum, sure, I could I could see where you might incorrectly. Yeah, but in a vacuum, your ears don't work because there's no medium for the sound to make it to them. When did you develop this hatred of Spyrogyra? No, it's not a hatred. It's I'm just your, I'm I, being your therapist right now. You know, I had a I had some trauma. <laughs> Point on the doll where the Spyrogyra touched you. <laughs> where, where, did, where did the Spyrogyra touch you? I was beaten as a child by <laughs> my, Spyrogyra. My parents cut me with Spyrogyra albums. I once ate some unclean fruit and got Spyrogyra. Do you also not like Rippingtons? I don't know the Rippingtons. I love really? Rippingtons. I don't know squat about the Rippingtons. Oh, man. It is very major key, happy kind of stuff. Yeah. I love it. There's a lot of skill in that. Yeah. Well, again, I love Spyrogyra. Don't get me wrong. Oh, now you love Spyrogyra. Okay. All right. <laughs> Audience, I would like for you to go back and rewind this episode for about five, ten minutes. And then come back to this point. At no time did I say that I did not like Spyrogyra. I'm just saying that Brand X and Spyrogyra are not the same thing. Oh, I see. You got it. No, I've seen Spyrogyra. Yeah. I saw them at the Rainbow Music Hall in the front You don't row. have to prove your credentials here, Craig. <laughs> I have Spyro cred. <laughs> no, I, lo- I love them. So, in fact, I was in the front row. And you know how they have a percussion player? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Spyrogyra. At the end, he was slapping everybody's hand, you know, kind of sort of high-fiving thing, because we were right there. This dude, you could tell he was a conga player. He slapped my hand, just about fractured the bones in my hand. I mean, it was yeah, like... Yeah, that tracks. It was solid Conga contact. players are intense. But uh, let's get back to Brand X. So this song is called Nuclear Burn, and it's cool. I like it because it's got a great synth solo, and then it's followed by some great guitar stuff. And again, this might be a little more akin to Spyrogyra than I would normally admit.
That's the one song I know. They might have opened that on the cruise. When I was doing my research listens, when I heard this, I didn't think this sounded anything like Hiroshima, Rippington, Spyrogyre, or anything like that. But what did jump out at me is it sounded a lot like Archeco to me. It sounded a lot like Lion Tortoise to me. Really? Because this was from the, the 70s run, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is an old song. This sounds very, very modern to me. Really? Even with the Art Odyssey synthesizer solo kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So where do you hear Arch Echo in that? Yeah. In the rolling notes? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here and break down all of the time signature stuff, acoustical stuff like you and Lee can. But as just a listener, just put me in like an aficionado listener kind of thing. Right. It feels like Arch Echo to me. Hmm. Interesting. It's uh, representative of a lot of their music, that kind of synth solo stuff mm-hmm. with a lot of fast guitar. What was interesting on the boat was Chris Clark basically had a piano and a synthesizer. A very, very small setup and was able to do everything. Nice. So one of the other things that hooked me on Brand X at the time was they would do different special projects, I like to call them. One of them was they did an interpretation of Peter and the Wolf. <clears throat> Let's listen to a bit of their interpretation of Peter and the Wolf. You'll soon get to know Peter and his friends in this adventure because they all have their own special musical sounds. This is Peter. That immediately takes me back to the 70s. I'm a huge Rockford Files <laughs> fan. That is so <laughs> reminiscent of the theme song to the Rockford Files. Mm-hmm. You realize that's a twanged up version of Prokofiev, the real theme of Peter. Yeah. From the opera. It really is Peter and the Wolf. I made my kids listen to that a ton. Oh, now that explains a few things. Yeah, I was going to go into the same place. Like, you know, we all have our discipline methods Get when we're parents. And- <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I'm going to make you listen to track three. Um, (laughs) that song kind of goes on for a ways Mm -hmm. and here's a keyboard player interpreting Peter and the Wolf and I'm going to ask you to listen to it and then guess who it is. How freaking tasty is that? Cool. Take a guess. Is that Keith Emerson? No. Jan Hammer? No. See, I thought you guys were going to say Rick Wakeman. Oh, God, no. Okay, so Rick Wakeman was the first one that came to mind. But that'd be too easy. No. Who is it? I'll just tell you. It's Manfred Mann. Yeah, you're a Manfred Mann freak. I keep forgetting that. I am a Manfred Mann. You are. Fan girl. I always forget that. Yeah. You're a Manfred Mann fan man. I am a Manfred Mann man. I think he plays a mini Moog so much better than Rick Wakeman. Yeah. Not to beat this one to death, but just to prove that it really is based on the song. Here's where Cat and Duck get in a fight because Cat is stuck on the banks of the lake and Duck is taunting him. So here's the Cat and Duck fight. 
and Cat got very cross. And that just goes on. That's a five-minute freaking. That's cool. You can you could just see the fur flying and the blood spraying, and <laughs> we have a very different understanding of Peter and the Wolf. <laughs> well, this is a uh, sort of grown up, I guess, a little bit. You went very R-rated. You know, that's a great segue, Tony, because these guys did a bunch of special projects. One of the things that was interesting is. Good Saul, the guitar player, also did uh, several movie soundtracks. And one of them that jumped out at me, uh, it was called Anal Intruders 9. <laughs> and I'm like, there is no way that can be what it sounds like. And I was on my work computer researching this. <laughs> no, no, I swear it's really research. Yeah, so uh, I, I got the uh, nasty gram. And, oh, you did? And, you know, it's funny if you search Anal Intruders 9, <laughs> Anal Intruders 1 through 8 come up. <laughs> Actually, did you ever see the movie Top Secret? Yeah. No. Okay, so Top Secret came out right after Airplane. It's the same guys. Okay. Just Google it, and there's a site <laughs> gag about that. I'm not even going to say it anymore. Okay. I did take a bullet for you guys, and I did watch it just to listen to the soundtrack, and really inspirational. Inspires you to do what? <laughs> <laughs> Inspires me to get a colonoscopy. Is this a porno spoof? Yeah, well, my company's IT department believes that it's the real deal, so... <laughs> And I apologize. Uh, I don't mean to get stupid. I didn't do the soundtrack. And by golly, it's on IMDb. It's on the guy's discography. Uh, you know, bless his heart. You know, someone's got to do it. That's actually false. No one has to do it. But I'm assuming that the check cashed. So that's really all that matters at the end. But we're going to move on. So I listened to some of the tracks from their second incarnation, sort of the mid 80s Brand X. I only have one example of that. It's called Dead Pretty. It's a little more, God, I hate to say it, a little more Spyrogyra. <laughs> <sighs> That's representative of their second incarnation. And it's okay, you know. But then I found this last clip online. I pulled it off of what is listed as their last studio album, and I'm listening to it. And I had a sort of interesting reaction. So I'll play it first, then we'll talk about it. That song is called Kugel Blitz. And one of my re first reactions was, oh, what a great way to end the show. 
because much like Brand X is a band that you've never heard of, but as soon as you hear them, you like them. There's a Jewish food called Kugel, right. and it sounds stupid, and it looks sort of horrendous, but it's delicious. It's a noodle dish, and I just thought that's a nice way to tie it together. Okay. So then I Googled Kugel Blitz, and it has nothing to do with food. Kugel Blitz, it's basically a black hole created from light. Really? If one takes a bunch of matter and compresses it down to be infinitesimally small, you get a black hole. Yeah, I listen to Arion. I know how this works. <laughs> so in theory, you can do that with energy, i.e. light. And when you get a black hole that's created from light, it's called a Kugel Blitz. Really? Yeah. No idea. UP3, learn a little bit of something. There you go. Come for the prog, stay for the science. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is this particular song is from their last quote-unquote studio album. But when I was listening to it, I'm thinking, huh, that sounds like old Brand X. And it turns out it's a lost tape from like their very, very first studio sessions. Mm-hmm. And it definitely has a, yep, we're hanging out in the studio jamming with the, with the tapes rolling. Yeah. And I think this was sort of related to what you were thinking about before, Tony. I don't know if you're going to cover this, but there's very much in my own research, there's these three distinct periods of Brand X. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, I have two questions on that. Mm-hmm. That period from 2016 to 2022, in terms of new content, that was not a productive period, really, right? Yeah, just live albums. It was like a farewell tour period. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what I thought. Yeah, exactly. So then the other question, I have listened to some of the stuff across these two different periods. Mm-hmm. As someone who's very steeped in the brand X, is there a distinctive tonal shift between the two periods, like the 70s period and then the mid-90s period? Yeah, I feel like it. And that's kind of what I was trying to show with the dead pretty clip. That to me is representative of their second phase. Less edgy, maybe. Less edgy. More spirogyra. I was waiting for you to say that. Yeah, I know. And I'm done. I'm, I won't bring that up again. <laughs> I don't know if the word edgy is for me. Mm-hmm. The 90s period, what I've listened to of it sounds much more constructed. Hmm. Like it was thoughtfully put together and then you came to a studio and you recorded the pieces and then you had an engineer that helped you. Mm-hmm. Very constructed. Mm-hmm. The 70s period Brand X sounds very, I guess the word I'll use is organic in that it very much sounds like we just showed up in the studio, had no idea what was going to happen. All of us got in a room together. The room was mic'd up. Our instruments were mic'd up. We screwed around for a few hours and then, hey, look at that. We have a song. If you start thinking of what the songwriting process is for a lot of people, there is, I believe, let's go to the studio and just play around. But looking at the first three, four albums that were in that first period of time, I think the songs are ultimately very well constructed with movements and melody through lines and beginnings and ends. Okay. Now, that's not to say they didn't get created by a lot of improvisation. I mean, even Genesis, you read about them. Yep. They go in the studio and jam, and hey, this could be something cool. I actually think that's totally fine, and this is why originally earlier in the show, 
I refer to it as like a jam band recording session because I think that absolutely, if you get some really great jazz artists in a room, they're naturally going to play off of one another and you're going to get through lines. You're going to get movements. You're going to get all of that just because of their artistic mastery. Mm -hmm. So I'm really thinking more of the logistics of how it was recorded and how that comes across in the recorded medium that you listen to versus any judgment of, good or bad or like or dislike or any of that, just more of how they went about doing it. Mm -hmm. I think what you're describing as edge, I'm hearing too, Mm -hmm. but I'm hearing it as they didn't go file all of the sharp edges off of it and make it some super polished thing. They left some of that rough hewn nature to it. And it gives it a certain characteristic that you either like or don't like or, or just appreciate or don't appreciate. Yeah. That I don't think the nineties brand X carries with it. Mm hmm. I think part of it is you and I have a different sense of what an edge is musically. That's fair. Okay. In my world, all of that has an edge, but I don't know how they recorded the music. And I don't know what what the production was. Honestly, the same thing. Yeah. So I can't really comment on it. I just feel like there is a distinct difference between the first incarnation and the second incarnation. And maybe that's really what this boils down to. We just acknowledge that that exists. Yeah. They were hungry. They were young. They were pushing boundaries. They were doing crazy stuff. Prog jazz and jazz fusion was new at the time. 90s were, all right, what can we do that's different? You know, that's a really good point. That's my view of Brand X. Three periods of time. My favorite absolutely is their first incarnation. Mm -hmm. The first three albums are stellar in my mind. The rest of them are good. And that's a sad that they're not touring anymore, but I am super, super happy. I got to see him twice on the boat. You know, they are just super, super humble, great guys. That was awesome, Craig. Thank you. You know, we usually do the recommendations. What are a couple of recommendations you would do for people to go from here with Brand X? Spyrogyre. Spyrogyre. Uh, <laughs> go listen to Spyrogyre. <laughs> yeah. Morning Dancer. Um <laughs> Uh, Moroccan Roll is awesome. Masks is awesome. Unorthodox Behavior is awesome. Okay. Their first three albums, and they're just, I love them. Listen to them all the time. Awesome. As we exit, don't forget, you can find us on Instagram and X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, at UP3Show. Also on Mastodon.social, at UP3Show. And you can send us emails at UP3Show at gmail.com. Just whenever you think of the show, think UP3 show. We definitely want to hear from you guys and and hear about what kind of topics you like. Tell Craig all about Spirogyra. Do whatever it is (laughs) that you you would like us to know. Um, As I say always in every episode, if you want to show us some support, it's super easy. Uh, Support us non-financially just by subscribing on our Podbean at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your episodes. Also, uh, please, if your platform allows it, take a moment to write a review. That also helps to prop up the show. And if you are so inclined to support us financially, you can support us at patreon.com slash up3show. This helps us pay for things like hosting and storage and, and all of that. And we would really, really appreciate it. Other than that, we will talk to you guys again next month. Bye. 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 Hey, folks. Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. 
We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.